0: Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So, if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, (laughs) hit that subscribe button, like, and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. We have five Sundays this month, meaning it is time for a brain break from the serious nonfiction I usually review, making this week's book of the week, Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein. This rounds out the trifecta of his own favorite works. The uh, cocktail is going to be called Holy Water, which is one ounce of vodka, one ounce of rum, a half ounce of blue curacao, a half ounce of peach schnapps, four ounces of lemonade, a splash of pineapple juice. Technically a strawberry to garnish, but the cocktail also calls for it to be built on a bed of strawberries and crushed ice. So I did that downstairs. So let's do this. Of Highland's three favorite works, his Stranger in the Strange Land* is the only one I had not read before. And I'm not really sure why, I I had to guess, if I had to guess I'd say it's because it was never one of my dad's favorite works, and he has all of Highland's books, including Stranger, he just never really cared for it, and he said that several times to me. So I never read it because my dad and I, if I had to guess, this is why I never read it, we have pretty similar reading tastes. I just want to say it's always important to do your own work, don't just take somebody else's word for it, always read your own books, you know, do do your own homework kids, don't copy off of other people. So I read it for myself for this month's book, and I quite enjoyed it, actually. Valentine Michael Smith was born of man on Mars. See, the first human mission to Mars was supposed to last for three years. Uh, Instead, when the eight people aboard the first ship to land on Mars failed to return home, it was assumed that the mission had been a complete failure. And 25 years would pass before Earth would send another ship out to see what was going on. And this time it would be a full colony ship. You'd have a full crew and you'd have, you know, like 20 settlers they were going to leave on the planet to, to see what they could make of it. When this second ship, the Champion, lands on Mars, they send back three dispatches to Earth, all of which make it, you know, technology advances in 25 years. The first one said, Rocket ship envoy located, no survivors. Second transmission said, Mars is inhabited. Third transmission, Correction of Dispatch 23 105 one survivor of Envoy located. Hmm. Isn't that intriguing? I went with the white rum because because, 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 it was the first bottle of rum I found, and so white rum it is. When the ship champion returns to Earth, they bring with them that one survivor who was the baby of two of the crew members of Envoy. Uh, that baby, of course, being Valentine Michael Smith known throughout the rest of the story as Mike. So that's pretty much how I'm going to call him from now on as Mike. Peach no. Mike, having been born on Mars is reported as a surviving as reported in the surviving Envoy Logbooks, is recognized by the Federated Nations as being Martian by birth, however he is not Martian there is an entirely separate species that already resided on Mars called Martians, so that that, that second thing that said Mars is inhabited it wasn't referring to Mike, it was referring to the Martians who, you know lived there already he is human though, he's not Martian, he's fully human there is a Martian species. They did take him in. They raised him as a Martian. They taught him everything there is to being a Martian, which here on Earth, New Ages would call unlocking your full potential. This book was written in 1961, so this kind of predates a lot of the New Agey things that came out of the 1960s movement. It might have inspired it. I don't know, but definitely was not inspired by the New Age movement. There's no mixing on this one. It's all just built straight in. That is not what I wanted. I wanted my eliminate the blue curacao goes on last you see so on mars telepathy teleportation esp these are normal things that all martians are capable of it's part of their culture they're born and raised doing it if they survive their time as as a nymph which is what they basically call the baby martians or an egg whatever when when a martian's life has run its full course he voluntarily discorporates this is not to be confused with you know unaliving yourself or anything like that he just decides to die and wills it so and this is part and parcel normal for the Martian culture he might ask the old ones who have gone before him if they can if it's a good time for him to go and if they agree he'll. it's basically a big festival he says hey I'm going to discorporate friends come over friends then eat his body and this is so that they can know him fully Um, basically it's how they grok their fellow Martians and it's all culturally normal on Mars very much not normal here on Earth and when some of the characters hear that they eat their dead they're like ooh that's Cannibalism, that's gross. We can't do that. And well, I wonder if I should have shaken this first. A little late now. Yeah. Taking a pretty pink color from the strawberries. A splash of pineapple juice. So, when Mike is brought to Earth, he is first brought to a hospital to acclimate to Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and he's essentially kept in isolation. And understand this is not for his health or protection. The doctor on the champion had already taken care of the overall health, made sure he had all the immunities and antibodies he needed to be exposed to to not die in instant death as soon as he set foot on Earth's atmosphere. a just splash a pineapple. So it wasn't for his health. It, it, I, I mean, it, it was to help him acclimate to Earth's atmosphere. Mars beat having a different atmosphere. His body was essentially really weak when it first landed here. That's fine. Primarily, it was to keep him from... Oh, Part of it was to keep him from being grafted onto by scammers. I I get that, right? Total sensation. Sole survivor of the Envoy mission. From Mars, born and raised there. That's going to be a freaking sensation, right? The media is going to lose their freaking minds over that. The primary reason was to get him to sign his rights away. See, we learn all this through the workings of an intrepid reporter, Ben Caxton. That's a very pretty cocktail. Turning blue from the blue curacao. Basically, you just stick a straw in it and drink. So that's what I'll be doing here. That's not too shabby. Well, I could see where you could get really drunk on that one, because really, you just taste the lemonade. And yeah, that's quite good. And it's hot as hell out here right now. So they know for sure that his mother was Dr. Mary Jane Lyle Smith. And they, they know, from the logbooks of the envoy. They know that she got pregnant pretty much right out of port. And on the envoy, she was the atomics engineer, electronics and power technician, and the wife of Dr. Ward Smith. See, they sent eight people, four couples. Uh, Dr. Ward Smith was the physician and surgeon and the biologist of the ship. They also know for certain, due to blood typing, envoy's logs, that Smith's father was not Dr. Ward Smith. His father was Captain Michael Brandt, commanding pilot, astrogator, relief cook, relief photographer, rocketeer engineer. And they also know from the log books that the uh, Dr. Ward delivered the baby by c-section. The mother died on the table. He then slit Dr. Brant's throat before slitting his own throat. So, Ward knew what was going on and was like, damn dude. Brant, having wanted to go very badly, he essentially arranged his own marriage of convenience with somebody who was nine years his senior and a spinster who also wanted to go. So I don't think she was really a factor. but. Ward Smith took a kind of personal like that his wife slept with the captain so the baby is the sole survivor of the mission but wait there is so much more to this tale you see Mike as the child of Mary Smith is set to inherit all of the royalties and benefits of her patent which she owned the sole rights to prior to her demise on the Lyle Drive which is how ships achieve interplanetary travel so you can imagine how immensely wealthy that would have made her and any descendants of hers and prior to leaving for Mars, she had placed those patent rights in trust with the Science Foundation, uh, in trust, not in a 401, not in a 401 or 4, shit, 501c3, excuse me, not in a 501c3, which would be a not for profit, to which she might not be entitled to anything. But as in, uh, with it being placed in trust, she's entitled to all the royalties accrued therein. So are her descendants. So with an aggregate interest over 25 years, Mike lands on Earth, the inheritor to a multi-hundred-million-dollar fortune. Even though he is technically a bastard, having been born from adultery, none of the jurisdictions on earth in which the three parents, uh, Ward, Mary, or Michael Brandt, lived acknowledge such illegitimacy. Mike was born in wedlock. Doesn't matter who the parents were. are, he is legal heir to the estate of not just Mary Smith, he inherits Ward Smith's estate, being born to that marriage, and Captain Brant's estate being of Brandt's actual bloodline. And... The entire crew had signed a gentleman adventurer's agreement, making them all heirs to each other's estates. So if, you know, one person died on the mission, the other seven would inherit the entire estate. With the whole crew dead and no other surviving heirs on Earth, Mike lands on Earth never having to work ever. This is not necessarily a good thing, incidentally. But it is what it is, right? It's not his fault that this is what he landed into. And because of Federation law which had determined that if a person is actually living on a planet, maintaining occupation of said planet, the planet belongs to him. I mean, never mind it was already inhabited by Martians. From the Federation's perspective, Mike, having been born and raised on Mars and being the sole human survivor by Federation law, owns Mars. Which means those 25 colonists they just left on the planet got no stake in the game. They're going to get nothing for the time they spend on Mars. So part of what they wanted him to sign away was the right to colonize so that these other people could get their colony set. This will grab many readers as kind of a what-the-fuck moment, like, oh, we're going to steal America from the Native Americans? Of course we'd steal an entire planet from the New Martians, or Native Martians. Don't worry, this gets covered. Now, we learn all of the above when Jillian, Jill, who is a nurse at the hospital and on the special floor where Mike is being treated, has dinner with her sometimes boyfriend, that aforementioned intrepid reporter, Ben Caxton. The Secretary General of the Federated Nations has put out word that no women are to see the men from Mars. I think the thought was that having never seen a woman, he would go, like, sex crazy as soon as he saw one. Jill decided this was an utterly ridiculous prohibition. She was a registered nurse. This was her floor in her ward. So she sneaks into Mike's room. And then kind of does something that's entirely innocent. She, she didn't know what the cultural implications of this would be for Mike. But... None of the Secretary General's staff thought of this, and this kind of sets the course for the rest of Mike's life. She offers him a glass of water. And when at first he's not sure if he should accept, she makes the assumption that he thinks it might be toxic, like she's maybe trying to poison him. So she takes a sip first to show that it's not toxic. Uh, He then takes a drink, which makes them water brothers. And on Mars, this is a big thing, right? It means essentially that they are family. Unlike on Earth, where sometimes the biggest backstabbers are your own closest kin, on Mars, it is literally impossible to betray your family. That whole telepathy thing. It's awfully hard to betray someone who can read your mind. And who, in the betrayal, it's like cutting your own heart out. It just doesn't happen on Mars. Um, but Smith has a pretty good instinct. And, and, and he knows who he can trust. It's, it's part of that telepathy. It's not that he can necessarily read her mind right off the bat because they don't really have a shared language. I mean, he understands some English. It's the Martian that really makes telepathy possible. He kind of he, he, he trusts her kind of implicitly, not just from the water sharing, but because he senses she's a good person who doesn't mean him any harm. But when Secretary General Joe Douglas shows up to have him sign some documents, which he can't even read, can't understand, does, would, wouldn't grok what the heck they said anyways, he tries to force the issue Well, Mike, having grown up on Mars, is able to put himself into a very deep trance, the type of trance where the machines at the hospital actually thinks he's dead. So, he just goes into that pretty much whenever he sees the Secretary General. I get it, dude. I do the same thing when I see government agents. From there, some government fuckery goes on. Pretty much at the behest of Douglas' wife, the woman behind the throne, who wants Douglas to get control of Smith's incredibly vast fortune. Mostly they try to pass off a fake man from Mars in the media so that they can work on Smith's on their own time. And that plan goes completely awry when intrepid reporter Ben Caxton goes missing and Jill becomes worried enough that she stumbles upon the room in the hospital they had moved Mike to while perpetrating their fraud and smuggles him out. Needing a place to hide, she takes him to Ben's pad and while there, the Secretary General's henchmen locate them and frighten Jill so badly that Mike makes him disappear. Like, literally, disappear. It's not like he just moved them to the street; they vanish and are never seen again and and they are dead, and while that's hinted at it becomes explicitly clear later in the book. Jill freaks out of what she's just seen because how often do you see two grown ass you know six four you know six foot tall two hundred pound men just vanish all right and it's not a sleight of hand; they're just genuinely gone. Her reaction causes Mike to break down because he thinks he's done something wrong or he, he knows he's done something wrong. He rocks it from her reaction and so he goes into his trance. And Jill doesn't want to just leave him behind because she's a good person and she's now known to be complicit in his disappearance. She shows his body into a, into a trunk like a suitcase and takes him to where Ben told her to go in the case of his own disappearance, which is to doctor and legal scholar Jubal Harshop. Now, Harshaw has retired from both of those professions and is comfortably supported by releasing works of fici- fiction under various pseudonyms. But Jill presents him with the man from Mars and tells of Ben's disappearance, and Harshaw becomes intrigued enough to offer them sanctuary at his residence, and while there, engages in many philosophical discussions with Mike so that Mike comes to see him as kind of a father figure and as the only person who groks it in English. Everyone else has to learn Martian to truly grok the meaning of life, but not Harshaw. And Harshaw is basically determined to stay out of it all until the government sends their goon squad to break down his door and take Mike by force. At which point, Harshaw engineers a dog and pony show designed to get everyone to leave Mike alone. Um, and it's during this point, instead of saying he's the sole owner of the planet of Mars, he says he's been sent to Earth as a representative of Mars, as kind of an, an uh, amb- ambassadorial thing. Is that a word? You know it is now. He also brings the Secretary General in line by getting him to agree to be the financial manager of Mike's estate, specifically Douglas, in his capacity as a private citizen. It's not going to be attached to the Secretary General position. It's Joe Douglas specifically. And the reason for that is that while Douglas has done some nefarious things, overall, he's generally honest as a politician. He generally wants to do the right thing. And now, of course, the entire world will be watching and paying attention to those finances, making sure he's only paying himself a fair salary. And if at any time Mike loses faith that he's doing a good job, then it goes to the next in line, which would be Ben Caxton. Also, if Douglas declines or becomes incapacitated, it goes to Ben Caxton. And Douglas doesn't like Caxton. Doesn't like reporters. Also a feeling I can empathize with. And Caxton's not dead. Uh, he, he had been detained indefinitely by the Secretary General's office, and he was released only when Harshop played his hand just right and basically made it a, a no-go situation if Caxton wasn't at the proceedings, which means they either had to confess they'd murdered him, which they wouldn't do, or release him, which is what did happen. And throughout all of this, Mike is building up his inner circle of only-to-be-trusted individuals all through the sharing of water. Water! Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, as one might imagine of a planet with no surface water, water is scarce and valuable on Mars, so the sharing of it is a sacred right and bonding experience and During this time, Harshaw and eventually everyone else that Mike bonds to comes to understand that this is like a lifelong commitment, one that Mike will never betray because he is literally incapable of betraying it, and Harshaw and several others get a chance to observe Mike's ability to disappear anyone or anything at any time that he views as a threat. And again, like, literally disappear. And when Harsha asks Mike if he can bring him back, Mike is kind of baffled by the question because it's never been done, there's never been a reason to. Like, there's a reason there's no violent crime on Mars, because Martians just make a violent person disappear. So it's not just Mike, this is very much a Martian thing. And we do find out that disappearing is death in a pretty straightforward manner. I mean, Highland literally tells you, yes, they're dead. And here's how we know. See, Mike refers constantly to the Martian Old Ones, like constantly. And throughout reading the book, you come to realize that the Old Ones are ones who have discorporated. And they're basically, they attained full grokking of all that they can possibly grok, voluntarily discorporate, and become basically spiritual advisors to the Martian peoples. I mean, Mike's quite serious. He can hear the old ones in his mind when they want to speak to him. And it, it, it never he never goes, is that the old ones or am I going crazy? He just, this is what he was raised in. He can hear the old ones. He's sure they're leading him. And they are, essentially. This isn't all in his head. Uh, so death among humans, where they just cease to be, is not something he can really grasp his mind around. And when he hears on a newscast uh, a church called the Fosterites has a couple of members who are sending to heaven... He very much wants to see this for himself because that's the closest thing he can see to to a Martian discorporation, right? So he, Jubal, and Jill attend as guests of one of the church's bishops, a fosterite ceremony. Now, it's not the Ascension. They missed that one because of the grand setup with, with Douglas and the Federated Nations. But they do go to a fosterite ceremony. It's very Bacchanalian. The the fosterites believe God just wants you to be happy, so drinking, gambling, sex, all of these things are allowed and encouraged in the fosterite church, which is kind of cool, I guess, Um, but only within the church. You can only drink brands of alcohol that support the church and eat food by brands that support the church, and the church has their own slot machines for gambling. And during the tour of the church, they get to see the sainted foster himself who died a while back. And his body was basically just left to mummify in the inner sanctum. This hits Mike as wrong because, ew, dead body, to they wasted food, right? Remember, they eat their dead when they die. And so having this mummified corpse just sitting behind a desk enshrined for all eternity struck him as very wrong and turned him off of the fosterites. I mean, the basic message was good. God loves you and wants you to be happy very Benjamin Franklin of him, you know, (laughs) fear, it still turns him off of the church. And the only reason he didn't just make the body disappear because of its wrongness is because Jill was like, no, 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 that's going to cause a problem. Leave the body there. It's their holy thing. But later, while Jubal and Jill are being entertained by the same bishop that invited them, Mike is given a private audience with the church's current prime leader, Digby, We don't know what happened in the private meeting, but Digby did something Mike saw as aggressive because Digby disappears. And Heinlein spends a chapter going over Digby's ascent to heaven, which means basically they were on the right path, right? However off Digby's own interpretations of Fosterite might have been, he was on the right path. And Foster was definitely on the right path because he's already like an archangel. And Digby, when he gets to heaven spends a while bitterly angry over his sudden discorporation and hating on Mike until he gets sent elsewhere on assignment to get over it. And by the time he's done with that assignment, he doesn't even remember who Mike is. Now, back on Earth, Mike is free to do as he wishes. He, They've settled the matter of inheritance and money, and he, he's no longer going to be the most wanted man alive, although technically they would be. But he, go, he and Jill go out on the road so he can learn everything he wants to. And ultimately, he finally gets it. He groks humans and what it means to be human and the ultimate goal of humanity. And immediately sets himself up as a pastor in his own church, the Church of All Worlds, and he starts proselytizing. Because, of course, he does. Now, this part creeped me out a bit. I'm not going to lie, it turned into a bit of a horror story there for a bit. Uh, I mean, like, some people think that this book helped spark the hippie free love movement. Fun fact, because I actually thought, I thought so myself. It was so patently obvious, right, the have, have free love have sex with who you want to you know the, uh, you know love should be shared with everybody so I actually went to the Wikipedia page for free love Stranger in a strange land is not cited in there anywhere I and mean, they, they, they cite sources all the way back to the 19th century as, as an influence but stranger is not cited as part of, of uh, an influence on the free love movement at all I have a typo in here. Now, don't get me wrong i extemporaneize a lot but typos are gonna bug me so what was creepy about it what makes it creepy right if, if you know I, i'm understand the free love concept how could the concept of free love turn creepy if it's not so i mean it's not something i'm into but you know i don't judge others for it i'm not in an open marriage it's never thought of or discussed of my husband and i are perfectly happy being two peas in a pod we don't need anybody else breaking up the pod ship here. We are our own pod. Thank you very much. We're like, nope, not for us. A third party just kind of throws off the mix. But it is for some people. And I have known people who are in open relationships and they're perfectly happy. Like all parties are perfectly happy. And that that's fine. If they're all happy consenting adults, it's none of my business. What creeped me out reading it was that it was very reminiscent of pod people. Not too He's in a pod like me and my husband happy in our marriage. It's like pod people where they all think alike, move alike. They, they talk to each other mentally, mind to mind. No verbal verbalization needed, which that could be cool. But you know, like some of them can teleport. Some of them can move things with their minds. When a couple has sex, they will share the sensation and experience with everyone in the nest. Now that's creepy as fuck. One of the priestesses, who might crib from the fosterites, begins to look like Jill. They basically become twins and sister wives to Mike. That's creepy. Um, not the sister wives, again, no shame or blame on, on people who are in an open marriage or who voluntarily engage in this activity, but the fact that their bodies begin to literally change so that they look alike. That's fucking creepy. All right. And it's commented on there and how, how at first they, they kind of resemble each other and by the end of it they're like twins. So much so that the doctor at the very end of the book to goes to the compound, calls out for Jill, turns around, and it's this other priestess Dawn. Weird, disgusting, wrong. And Mike doesn't just crib from the fosters. I mean, all religions are welcome and he sees no contradiction in having people be Jewish and a member of the Church of the Worlds, of all worlds, or Muslim and Church of All Worlds. All are welcome. But in order to keep advancing, you do have to grok the overall message. And this is where Mike starts experiencing problems and ultimately has to loop Jubal in to see where he went wrong. Um, The final denouement happens, denouement, it's French, sorry, happens when a member of a rival church, I don't think it was specified, but maybe it was because Catholic sticks in my head, announces that Mike is a fraud and gets the police after him. And while Mike is in jail, someone firebombs the temple-slash-nest where everybody else is living. Now, no one is hurt. All party members make it out out just fine, and they go to their retreat location, their their bug-out location, which happens to be a five-star hotel that the church owns through many shell corporations, so it's not immediately obvious where he goes. And Mike makes a rather dramatic escape from jail by making all the bars in the jail disappear. Not just from his cell, like all the bars vanish so that all prisoners are suddenly freed. Except for Mike knows in that Martian way of knowing uh, that some of them are completely broken inside and inherently dangerous. So those he just disappears. He doesn't say what happens to those who are bad people who he disappears. So I don't know if they actually do go to hell. That isn't covered in the book. Then Mike himself retreats to the nest hiding spot and waits for Jubal to show up. And in private conversation, Mike discloses to Jubal that he realized unexpectedly that he had been an inadvertent spy for Mars. Which I actually kind of suspected all along. There must have been some kind of foreshadowing that my subconscious picked up on. That it wasn't ever explicitly stated, but I suspected he was a spy for Mars. May or maybe it was just the logic of it right, if they could communicate telepathically, then they would have no earthly reason to send anybody other than someone who could survive on earth like a man born of man who happened to be raised martian that's what I would do, right? <laughs> I can send him in and be a spy essentially, the Martians, having decided they learned all they could from Mike about what humanity was like, severed the connection and he felt it go and Then he realized what had happened and advised Jubal that Mars might just decide to blow up Earth or they might decide to conquer Earth culturally by making humans over into their image, which in effect is exactly what Mike had been doing. And once Mike made that connection, he determined that's no longer what needs to be done. You can't can't force the connection, which is kind of where he was going. Not not that he believes in force, he doesn't. It's just he was trying to speed the process along and it really can't be sped up. I and mean, what needs to be done is his core message, and it, it's the temple greeting that he'd been instilling in all of his followers, Thou art God, and that needs to be fully grokked by everyone, and he thinks that Martian is the best language to grok it in, but then again, it's his native language, and the professor, who doesn't speak any Martian, groks it immediately, fully, to the core, Thou art God, it simply means this, and this is a direct quote from the book, it's not a message of cheer and hope, Jubal. It's a defiance and an unafraid, unabashed assumption of personal responsibility. Uh, Mike then goes on to say, quote, but I rarely put it over. A very few, just these few here with us, our brothers, understood me and accepted the bitter along with the sweet, stood up and drank it, grokked it. The others, hundreds and thousands of others, either insisted on treating it as a prize without a contest, a conversion, or ignored it no matter what i said they insisted on thinking of god as something outside of themselves something that yearns to take every indolent moron to his breast and comfort him the notion that the effort has to be their own and that the trouble they are in is all their own doing is one that they can't or won't entertain So some people in reading this book get caught up on the multi-partner sex orgies that are hinted at or the utopian possibility of perfect communism that could be achieved if we were all telepathically linked and able to share as nest shares. But what Heinlein, through Mike, was saying is that none of this is possible as long as you continue to blame your life on others. And therein lies Heinlein's trifecta. So, I remember he said these were his three favorite books because they were all about personal responsibility. Moon is a harsh mistress. Don't rely on the government to administer your life. Be responsible for your own life. Starship troopers. Don't rely on the military to protect your life. Although military is a damn good way to learn self-responsibility. Stranger in a Strange Land. Don't depend on religion to defend your soul. It's a starting place, but ultimately you are responsible for how your soul decays. All three are about personal responsibility. Ultimately, you are in charge of your own destiny thou art God and that's it for this week Uh, if you like what you saw don't forget to subscribe I'm not going to tell you how the book ultimately ends because you really should read it for yourself just know there is an unabridged version out there which I have not read the copy I read was released in 1981 the unabridged version was released in 1991 so it's possible there's a slightly different ending and more details that I haven't read yet but I'll see you guys next Sunday